0: For listening to Sozo Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information on Sozo Church, visit Sozospokane.com. Sozo Church. Awesome. My name is Mark Blair. My wife and I serve as the lead pastors here. I'm super excited that you decided to come and hang out with us this morning. Um, I, we are in the midst of a series through the Gospel of John. You've probably figured that out from the uh, the video you just watched. Uh, we're about a third of the way through the book. It's taken us about a year to get here, and uh, we are super excited to uh, to be together and to continue to to continue, rather, uh, to move through this book together. Um, And so, yeah, if you've got a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn to John chapter 7, or maybe I could say turn on your Bible and go to John chapter 7. I'm not sure which one. Uh, It's up to you. But uh, we'll we'll be there either way. Um, Last week, we we looked at the same passage we're going to look at this week, and and I, I did my best to keep my Bible teacher hat on the whole morning and uh, just sort of walk through it very historically, very exegetically, uh, very, very much from the covenantal topic that it touches on. But this morning, if you'll allow me to, I'd like to sort of take another pass at this uh, text and maybe even expand it a little bit further from where we were before and, uh, and look at it from a slightly different angle and maybe apply it a little bit more pastorally to us, if you'll let me do that. I'm going to do it either way, so you might as well disagree. <laughs> It's easier for everybody. So if you've you've got your Bibles open or on, go ahead and turn to John chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 14. Can you go ahead and stand to your feet for the reading of God's word? Uh, We don't stand because we're trying to make you uncomfortable. We're not trying to stand because we're weird. We are weird, but that's not why we stand. Uh, We stand because we believe that what we're about to read is the living, active, breathing word of God. Amen? So we stand to show honor and respect to that. Uh, Much will be said this morning, but we believe what we're about to read is God's very word to us. So this morning we're going to read this. Uh, I'm going to read till verse 36, and then I'm going to go ahead and jump to verses 40 and read through uh, the end of the chapter uh, this morning, just because I want to give us a little bit of context uh, more so than we got last week. So this is John chapter 7, starting in, uh, I'm going to start in verse 14. So we'll do this. It says, In the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man... uh, How is it that this man has learned when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken... Are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well. Do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly. And they said, They say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know that where this Man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Verse 28, Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, in him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowds muttering these things among him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go, that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Let's go ahead and jump down to verse 40 now. Jesus does some teaching in verses 37, 38, and 39 that I want to come back to next week, but we'll go ahead and jump back down. It says that when they heard these words, the words that Jesus was teaching, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, "This is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ would come from the offspring of David and come from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed, Nicodemus, who had come to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, "You, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Let's pray together this morning, church. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that your word is alive and active. Lord, we thank you that you desire to speak to us, and so we come to you with the expectation to hear you speak this morning. God, both in what we have read as well, Lord, through your spirit-breathing life upon what we have read, and so we ask that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive, feet to walk in obedience to all it is that you would speak to us. Lord, show us those areas which we have, have, have failed to yield to who you really are. Open up our eyes to see you, our ears to hear you, God. Lord, we want you to be glorified in the midst of us today. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. Amen. Go ahead and high five at least six people this morning and grab a seat. Awesome, awesome. Thanks for being friendly. And I'm sorry to all the introverts. Uh, well, we're going to go ahead and jump through this morning. And I'm just going to be honest, I, I don't have a lot of slide stuff to put up this morning because I, I want us to just sort of take, take a look. I have one sort of goal this morning, and that is to answer one very simple question. And that is, how is it that the people of God missed an encounter with God when he was standing and speaking to them face to face. And we need to realize contextually, we talked about this before, that that, that Israel, the the Jews, the, the, the officers, all of the other sort of characters in this narrative, all of them are the very people that claim to be waiting for God to show up and meet them. All of them claim to be the people who were anticipating the arrival of their Messiah, of their God. And yet when he stood in front of them, when he stands and he speaks to them, they seem to be completely unaware of his presence with them. And how is this possible? How is it that they missed God? How is it that as he spoke to them, they were unaware that it was him standing there? I believe the answer is actually quite simple. I believe they refused to accept a God who did not conform to their expectations. They had a a list of things that the Messiah, that God was going to do. This is how he's going to come. This is how he will behave. This is how he will act. This is how we will know that it's him. And when he shows up and he does not behave that way, they are unable to recognize that it is they that are in the wrong and not he. They're so busy trying to figure him out that they forgot to stand, they they, they forgot to recognize that which was standing right in front of them. You see, Jesus does not conform to their cultural, religious, or spiritual expectations of what a Messiah should be. He doesn't conform to their their preconceived notions about what he should do or how he should act. Culturally, he, he doesn't act like the other rabbis. We talked about this last week. That when they say, how has he learned when he has not studied, we, we miss what's going on there because we don't understand culturally that, that it was expected that rabbis would quote other rabbis. They would cite their sources. When they would teach, they would, they would speak about the other rabbis that they were, uh, they, they were trained by. And so as Jesus comes and he's not quoting all these other rabbis, they're They're confused. Remember that the rabbis in their day were really the, the, the celebrities, the rock stars. They're who everybody looked up to and, and was excited to be around. They were the culture shapers. See, he doesn't parrot what others have said, but rather he speaks the truth as if this truth carries its own authority. It doesn't need to be cited by some other source. He doesn't follow their religious rules. He refuses to work their system or cater or bow to the religious leaders to get their permission to work among the people. He's not following their expectations. I love this, he he heals on the Sabbath, he says things that makes everybody run away from him. Jesus stands up at maybe the height of his, his ministry career, the height of his success, And he stands up among them and says, if you don't eat my body and drink my blood, you're all going to hell. And like a bunch of good little Jewish kids, they all run for the hills. He doesn't follow their rules. He doesn't kiss their ring. He doesn't seek their approval and he won't be controlled by them. And he has no time for their supernatural superstition. There's there's an interesting little dialogue they have here where they say, well, we know where he comes from And when the Messiah appears, we won't know where he comes from. I find this super interesting because they say that and then later they say the Messiah will come from this certain place and we know where he's supposed to come from. What's happening here is actually they're, they're blinded to this, this dichotomy that they're, they're, they're speaking because on one hand, they, they're, they're aligning themselves with, just re, with supernatural superstition. There was a rabbinical teaching, a teaching by the rabbis that when the Messiah appeared, he would, he would do just that. He would pff, appear like some sort of magic trick. Puff out of nowhere, he would just appear. And yet they also knew that the scriptures taught that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And so Jesus has no time for their superstitions. He has no time for these little little cliche things that they're trying to stay, their bumper sticker theology. And so he avoids it. Jesus is missed by them because he doesn't conform to their expectations, not culturally, not religiously, and not spiritually. And my worry is this that with the benefit of our hindsight 2020 chronological snobbery, that we'll forget to ask the question, how often do we do the same thing? How often do we miss encounters with Jesus because he does not conform to the way we want him to behave? How often do we miss his desire to meet with us, his desire to speak to us, his desire to move in our hearts, in our lives, because we choose to put some sort of filter in front of what he's allowed to do. He doesn't match our expectations. So this morning, if you'll allow me, I'd like to just stop and look and see if there may be some things in our own hearts that... Hinder our acceptance of Jesus moving. You see, culturally, Jesus does not match our culture. Hello, somebody? Jesus does not match our culture. Jesus is not a right wing Republican. He is not a left wing Democrat. He is not a conservative. He is not a liberal. He is not a progressive. Jesus is not a capitalist or a socialist or a communist. He is not for the wealthy or the worker or even for the weary. Jesus makes it abundantly clear in verse 18, he is for the glory of his father. He does not conform to the culture with which we desire to cram him into. Jesus came proclaiming, catch this please and understand, he came proclaiming the kingdom. He came proclaiming the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, his own kingdom. Jesus declares and demonstrates the reality that the kingdom had come, that his kingdom was not of this world and would not be leveraged for the advantage of any other kingdom. His kingdom comes to rule over all the little kingdoms that we seem to want to make for ourselves. And he comes and he appears and he rules and reigns over all of them. And I want to say to us very carefully, as we're about to get into, and we already really are, into a season where we're going to try to leverage Jesus for our benefit. I want us to be very careful and recognize that you can't just sprinkle a little Jesus on whatever you want and make it redeemed. You can't just add a side of Jesus and call it kingdom. The kingdom is only the kingdom when the king is the king over the kingdom. That was less clear than I hoped it would be but I think three of you got what I was saying. The kingdom is only really the kingdom. The thing that Jesus claims that he comes to bring is only really that when he as the king gets to rule over that kingdom. If anybody else is ruling and reigning over the kingdom, it ceases to be, come on, the kingdom. This is the wonderful thing about the gospel is the gospel is tamper-proof because the moment you tamper with it, it ceases to be the gospel. So you can't actually corrupt the gospel. You can just make something that you call the gospel that's not really the gospel. Now, I wanna, I wanna be super, 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 super clear. While it is 100% true that Jesus redeems every aspect of our lives, every facet of our culture, we need to understand that we, that he does not redeem it by stepping in and showing how he is He is just an add-on, but rather to show us that he is the ultimate purpose of that thing. He's not an add-on. He's not something you can add to whatever you want and call it redeemed. We tried this. It doesn't work. You can't just slap a Jesus bumper sticker on it and claim that now it's redeemed. That's the car for the kingdom. It's got a Jesus bumper sticker on the back. I love love the way our, our culture thinks we think that if we drive through McDonald's, supersize our Big Mac value meal, as long as we get a Diet Coke, it's healthy. <laughs> well, I'm watching what I eat, so I get the Diet Coke. But don't, don't we do this with Jesus? Don't, don't we do this with Jesus? Jesus. We fail to realize that he's not an add-on, he's trying to show us that he is the ultimate intended purpose, listen to me, of everything. Jesus is the point of everything. We have this saying around here that I'm so sad that it's just become a saying and we fail sometimes, I think, to realize the truth of it. It is all, all about Jesus. I love you. And so I'm going to say some things to you this morning that you might not, we not, might not be friends when we're done, but I love you enough to say to you anyways. My email address is mark, M-A-R-K, at sozospokane.org. Most of them will go in spam, so go right ahead to email me. <laughs> it's not my fault, that's just Google. So um, please email me. I'm ha- happy to hear from you if this offends you, but you need to hear this. Your marriage is not going to be saved because you drag your spouse to church. I love you. Your marriage is not going to be saved because you drag your spouse to church. Your marriage is redeemed when you both recognize that the purpose of your marriage is to glorify him and conform you to his image. Some of you spouses that are here alone are like, I wish my spouse was here to hear that. No, you need to hear that. Your finances aren't going to be turned around because you drop a few dollars in a bucket or through an app when you feel like it. Your finances will be redeemed when you recognize that Jesus gave you everything you have and he wants to be the one to tell you how much and when and where to give. He wants you to ask him, obey him, and learn to trust him even when the amount he tells you to give is more than you were planning on or even, come on somebody, comfortable giving. Three of you are excited about that. That's awesome. (laughs) Your business and your job isn't going to explode because you hang a scripture on your wall or add a verse to your website. Jesus put you exactly where you are. He put you in the exact position you have because you are his ambassador for his kingdom in that place and he desires to establish a gospel outpost in your cubicle, in your office, in your truck, on your job site, with your coworkers, wherever you are and that's his purpose in having you there. Your kids aren't going to uh, to behave because you drag them to Sozo Kids or to youth group on the on Wednesday nights, or because you homeschool them, private school them, or teach them to be missionaries in the public school. It's not going to happen. No, but rather your children will know redemption when your life, every aspect of your life, is ruled and reigned over by Jesus. Do you want good kids or you want godly kids? Good kids won't embarrass you in public. Godly kids will question your behavior in private. We'll just let that one sit for a bit. See, Jesus doesn't conform to us culturally, but he also doesn't conform to our religious expectations either. Because, see, Jesus isn't interested in submitting himself to your fundamentalist rule book. He will not conform to your version of how he should look, behave, or perform. And he is not hindered by our understanding of how he should or shouldn't or is supposed to behave. Jesus moves when, how, where, and upon whom he chooses. I love the way Jesus sort of steps in and seems to do the opposite of what they want him to do. On the Sabbath, the day he should be teaching, he heals somebody. And then at this great festival where you would expect him to come and put on a show and heal a bunch of people, he just sits down and starts teaching. He, 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 he doesn't follow their little rules. And we seem to want to judge God when he doesn't follow our rules, does it, don't we? You say, well God, well, God, you can't do it that way. That's not the way you're supposed to do it. That's not the way you're supposed to work. We don't like it when he uses or blesses people that we think are unworthy to be used or blessed, which simply goes to show that when we're used and when we're blessed, we think it's because we earned it. No, we're used and we're blessed because he is good and he is gracious and he is kind. See, religion seeks to form God into an image that is intellectually acceptable to our sense of decency. Religion tries to shape God into an image that is intellectually acceptable to our decency. It seeks to make God palatable, to sand off all of the parts that are unappealing or make us uncomfortable. The problem is that what immaturity finds comforting, maturity finds appalling. Don't believe me? There may be some debate over how many months you should breastfeed your children, but there's no argument over how many years you should. <laughs> Breastfeeding is comforting to a, to a 10-month-old. It's disturbing to a 10-year-old. Okay, What, what immaturity finds uncomfortable, maturity finds necessary. Come on. There, there's this aspect that we're trying to make God look the way we want him to look, Religion, and by religion, I don't mean true and undefiled religion as it's defined in scripture, but rather the dogmatic fundamentalist system that our current religious system has built. It builds boxes to put us in, but it also attempts to build boxes for God to fit into. And let me, let me just let you on a secret. God will not be put in any box. It does this because it, it's supremely concerned with things being, come on, follow me, decently and in order, and trying to keep us safe. Here's the problem. God does not define decently and in order the same way we do, and he is not safe. say, no, 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 brother, the Bible says everything should be done decently and in order. You are absolutely true. The Bible says that everything should be done decently and in order. And God calls decently in order angels who, whose whole bodies, their rims, their spokes, their, their wings, and the wheels, the wheels that make them up are filled with eyeballs. That's in the Bible. Ezekiel says he saw angels and they were winged, wheeled, covered in eyeballs creatures. And God goes, that is decently and in order. In heaven, he has angels, these wheelie-winged eyeball creatures, <laughs> running around heaven, screaming over and over and over again that he is holy. That, that sounds a little bit like an elementary school, preschool nursery to me. Just kids running around, screaming the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. God says decently and in order. He has saints just hucking crowns at him and screaming how worthy he is decently and in order. See, our definition of decently and in order does not fit God's definition of decently and in order. You say, what do you mean by God is not safe? God is not safe. He is quite literally anything but safe. Exodus thirty three twenty two says you can't see his face and live. Leviticus 10, God kills Aaron's sons because they have a flippant attitude toward his presence. And you say, well, well, see, you don't understand. That's the angry, mean God of the Old Testament. The New Testament, God figured out how to feather his hair and pet sheep. (laughs) Well, the problem with that is God also killed Ananias and Sapphira for lying to the church about how much money they gave, and that's in the book of Acts. God is anything but safe. So here's what I want us to do. Let's let God be God and stop trying to make him conform to our way and begin to allow him to conform us to his way. His ways are not like our ways because his ways, catch this, are better. He is superior. He is beyond. He is better. He doesn't conform to our ways because our ways are inferior to his ways. He also doesn't conform spiritually. See, Jesus isn't limited by your supernatural superstition regarding the way his spirit moves in our midst. Where the religious person demands Jesus follow a dogmatic fundamentalism of intellectual snobbery, the spiritualist demands that Jesus follow the mystical, ethereal, metaphysical, mythologicalness of his emotional, sociological addiction to experientialism. I just want to have an experience. I just want to feel something. And this, is, this is the group that says, well, God, Jesus, the Messiah is just supposed to appear here. We were really looking forward to that trick. We hope he does another one. We hope he, we hope he heals another person. We hope, we hope he pulls a quarter out from behind another kid's ear. I hope he makes me feel good again. I hope I get goosebumps this morning when worship happens. I hope they have enough reverb on to really make me feel the spirit. You see where the fundamentalist demands that he conform to their mental expectations or rules. The superstitious spiritualist one demands that he performs to their emotional or experiential expectations of his coming. When we think that the truth of the Bible is boring and needs to be spiced up. When we think that we have outgrown the simple truth of the gospel or the good news of the kingdom When we demand a bigger emotional high from worship, we are in danger of aligning ourselves with this camp. How often do we judge our church experience by how it makes us feel? How often do we, do we gauge it based upon our emotional response? How quickly do we attempt to manipulate the scriptures into agreeing with our desire for some emotional, spiritual high when in reality, all we've done is exchange the old addiction we had to drugs and alcohol for a new addiction to some spiritual high in church services? If we don't get our fix, we somehow leave feeling like we need something else. Really, we've just ex- exchanged one drug for another, but we're ultimately worshiping the same God. Ourself. It's funny how we can hide our spiritualism in religiosity or our religiosity in spiritualism too. I, I, I question whether or not to even separate these two because in so many ways they're the same thing, just, just the, the, the flip side of a coin. See, worship does not need more or less lights than we currently have. It doesn't need more or less volume, more or less reverb, more or less fog machines, more or less lasers, It doesn't need an organ or a piano, a synth or a drum kit. It doesn't need hymns or hillsong. It doesn't need any of those things. It doesn't need any of those things to be true worship. All it needs, all it needs, hear me please, is your heart and your mouth. You want to take worship to the next level here at Sozo? You want the next time we gather together for worship to be better than it has ever been? Here's how you do that. You engage your brain, pour out your heart, raise your hands, lift your voice, and declare the splendor, majesty, and goodness of Jesus and let your emotions be damned. Regardless of how I feel, I will declare he is good. Whether I see it today or not, I will declare that he is good. That's how we take worship to the next level. How often do I allow my feelings to ruin worship? Are feelings bad? No. Feelings are not bad. We 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 train our kids this way. Your feelings are not bad. They're just horrible leaders. Your emotions are wonderful followers, but they're horrible leaders. If you are led by your emotions, you are unstable in all of your ways. And the Bible has some stuff to say about that. It's amazing how religious spiritual people can be. It's it's actually the, the spiritual crowd that tends to say things like, well, that's not how God did it last time. That's not how God moved when I was a kid. That's not the way he he moved in worship when I was younger. You're right. He didn't move this way last time, and he won't move this way next time. But is this the way he's moving this time? Here's a funny thing. God never changes. God is unchanging. He is the same yesterday. He's the same today, and he's the same forever. Okay? Jesus is God. God. So God never changes. But here's an interesting fact. Jesus never healed the same way twice. In all of the accounts of all of the things that Jesus did, he never heals the same way twice, which I think made people really happy because if you just watch Jesus pick up sand, go spit in it, make mud and rub it in somebody's eyes, I think you'd be like, I hope that's not how he's gonna heal my you know, mouth sore. He's <laughs> like, don't worry, that's just for blindness. God never changes, but he is not limited to have to move in some obligatory way because that's the way he did it last time. Because here's the secret. He's God. He can do what he wants. The answer is not to trade our religious fundamentalism for supernatural superstitions or some vague spiritualism. Catch this, please. Rather, it is to learn to live in the ever present awareness of an inner dwelling Jesus who gives us his spirit. Come on, to lead us into all truth. It's learning to abide in him as he abides in us. Now, you can call that spirituality if you want to, you can call it religion if you want to. I don't care. The point is, it's not about some external set of rules that we follow. It's also not about some internal set of feelings that we follow. It's about abiding, come on, in him and allowing him to abide in us and learning to follow the leading of his spirit. Let your expectation of who he is, how he moves, and what he does when he does it be shaped by an abiding intimacy with him. Jesus is God and as such is totally free to do as he chooses because his way, come on, is always the best. His way is better than our way. Can I tell you why? I got time. Can I tell you why his way is better? We say that, we say his way is better. And I think sometimes we, we misunderstand what we're trying to say. We, we think it's just superior in quality. It is superior in quality, but there's an actual tangible reason why his way is better than our way. Because his way, catch this please, never has to decide whether he's going to work for his glory or our good. When God moves, it's always Both. See, religion says I have, to move, I have to do everything I do for his glory, but I, if it doesn't make me miserable, it doesn't count. None of you want to admit that that's what you know religion says, right? Like, if it, if, like I gotta find a place to serve in the church and I know they're gonna make me serve in the nursery and I hate the nursery. <laughs> and if I don't serve in the nursery, then I'm, it doesn't count because I, if I like it, then that's not serving because serving is, you know the Greek word for serving is misery. I don't know Greek, but I'm sure that's what it means. <laughs> no, that, that... See, religion says it has, to, it, has to, it has to be painful in order for it to be good. God, I have to pick God's glory, and that means I have to be miserable. Whereas spirituality says if it doesn't feel good, I'm not going to do it. It makes God the servant of man rather than man the servant of God. But when God does things his way, he doesn't have to pick between his glory and our good. He does both. He always does both. He heals people. Who gets the glory? God does. Who gets the good? They do. Even if they got mud put in their eyeballs. (laughs) See, when when we when we bend to his way, his way is perfect. He is perfect. So his ways are always perfect. He is always working for his glory and our good. So Jesus came to break all the boxes that we try to put him in. He did it to them, and listen to me, church, he's doing it today to us. When we try to fit him in a little box so that he's decently in order, when we try to fit him into a little box so that we're safe from him, he shatters those boxes. He came to bring a kingdom that would rule over all of the other kingdoms. He came so that we could have an abiding intimacy with him. This is why he came, and hear me please, I believe this is why he continues to visit us. He continues to make his presence known. He continues to open our eyes to his goodness that is here with us always. What I'm trying to say is simple. Jesus is better than we thought. Jesus is bigger, sorry, Jesus is bigger than we thought. He is better than we expected and he is more beautiful than we could ever imagine. And when we try to fit him, come on, into our cultural expectations, our religious expectations, our spiritual expectations, we miss the reality of his beauty, of his betterness, of his the magnitude of who he is. So this morning, I'm pleading with us as a community, as a church, to not do that. To allow him to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. Not only listen to me, not only as we gather together like this, but in every moment, in every aspect, in all areas of our life, to not try to put some, some Instagram filter on top of him so that he looks more appealing. not to try to edit out the, the stuff that we don't like. To polish up Jesus and sand off his rough edges. To ignore the weird things that he says that make us uncomfortable. But rather to wholly and completely submit to him in all areas, in all ways. We must surrender to who he is and how he chooses to visit us, regardless of how it meets our expectations, our preferences, or even, hear me please, our past experiences with him. How he moved in your life last time, maybe won't be, probably won't be, is not going to be how he moves in your life this time and the next time and the next time. We rejoice because he will move again and again and again and again because he is faithful and he is good and he is true. Let's stand to our feet. I don't think there's a way for us to respond this morning other than to simply take some time and surrender to him. I think there's another way for us to, to really practice this without just doing that, just practicing it. So this morning, we're, we're gonna do what we always do. We're gonna take some time to respond. We're gonna create a space here for a few moments where we are free to to respond in a few ways, we we we've set aside some time for contemplation to just take some time to to allow the truth of what has been spoken today to to go deep within the fiber of your being to maybe uh, reassess some of the way that you've processed maybe 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 not all of these things but some of these th- these things are are landing in your own backyard maybe you only want Jesus to move if He moves the way that you. Expect him to the way he did last time. Maybe you need Jesus to fit into a certain little nicely contained man made box that you have made for him. Maybe you need to make some room for Jesus to destroy some boxes in your life. Maybe you need to ask Jesus to grant you repentance change the way you think about him and about the way that he moves maybe you're here and if you're going to be honest with yourself you've never really surrendered to Jesus at all maybe you've just added Jesus as a side dish to the life that you already had Jesus is just your Diet Coke at the end of the buffet line. He makes everything healthy, right? This morning, I, I would I would ask you to get honest with yourself, to get honest with the presence of God that is here in this room, and genuinely ask yourself: Have you surrendered? Or are you just trying to leverage Jesus for your own benefit? Listen, I believe with every fiber of my being, the, the best your life can be is surrender to Jesus. But I don't surrender my life to Jesus so he makes my life better. If you're here this morning and you would be honest and say, I, I have not surrendered my life to him I I have not I have not surrendered I'm just trying to add him to my already existing life I would just plead with you to repent and believe the gospel to admit and abandon that that reality to admit that you know Jesus I I haven't really handed everything over to you I've just tried to add you to my life and abandon that let it go simply let him know I'm not interested in, in side dish Jesus anymore all of your faith, come on, in Him. He is what you need. Come on, church, He is what you need. You don't need a little of Him on the side of everything else. You you need all of Him in everything. He is the purpose. He is the reason. He is all in all. He is everything. And anything less than giving all of you to all of Him is simply insufficient. It's not that it's not good. It's just insufficient. So I believe with all of my heart that the Spirit of God is here this morning beckoning some to come, to surrender, to lay down, to abandon cultural ideologies, to abandon religious fundamentalism, to abandon supernatural, superstitious spiritualism, and to embrace the reality, come on church, of who Jesus really is. He is God, and He is good. So we celebrate this moment, we, we respond to this moment through contemplation, through confession. We also respond through communion. We've decided as a a community of people to remember the means by which we are able to have this abiding fellowship with Jesus. It is simply and solely based upon the full and final and finished work of Jesus he gave us something to do to remember that finished work he he gave us communion the the breaking of bread and the taking of the cup we've chosen to do this every time we gather together in a method known as in where we take a piece of bread we do have gluten-free wafers at all the stations a fully gluten-free station all the way to my left your right we take a piece of bread we dip it into the juice and we partake wanna be super clear these tables are open to anyone and everyone who has put their faith in Jesus. We wanna celebrate communion together as the people of God. And at the same time, we want to let you know that this is a gift given to believers. This is a gift given to the family of God. So if you're not a Christian here this morning, if you are not a follower of Christ, we're not gonna ask you to come up and pretend like you are and take communion. We're, we're gonna free you to just remain in your seat and wait until such a time as you have repented, until you have believed the gospel. So as we begin to celebrate and sing, as we take time to contemplate, as we take time to confess, as we we do those things, we wanna invite you as you feel led to come and partake in communion. And also, the other way we commune is one with another. We've got a team of people that will be down in this lit area behind the chairs here to give you some privacy. If you have a need, in any way, shape, or form. If you're going through something relationally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, you have a need in your life. You you need God to meet you. Maybe you need to confess and you need to say, look, I'm struggling with trying to put Jesus in a culture box or in a religion box or in a spiritual box, and and I just need to, to break that box. And you want to confess that to somebody. You want somebody to pray for you in that area team of people that would love the opportunity to stand with you and pray with you especially if you're here and you're saying I want to I accept Christ I want to surrender to Jesus I want to hand my life over to him they would love the blessing the privilege of standing with you and praying with you so as I pray as I finish we're going to go ahead and respond so Holy Spirit we thank you this morning Jesus thank you for your goodness toward us But I thank you that you don't conform to our expectations. And I thank you for that because our expectations are too small. Our view of you, our our, our little drawing of what we think you should look like is so infuriating and so pathetic compared to the reality of your beauty and your holiness and your worthiness and your majesty and your splendor and your power and your authority thank you for not, not coming down to our level but rather lifting us up to yours so we ask one more time Jesus for you to open up our eyes to see you Give us hearts that will respond to you. Transform our lives. Grant repentance to some today. Touch hearts today. Shatter boxes today. Rule and reign this day and every day for the good of all people and the glory of your name. Church, let's respond to the Lord.